0: the rich, feed the poor. Tell.
1: Yeah, there you go with the familiar lyrics, Alvin Lee talking about the changing world that we live in. He only prophesized that and looked at in his long-term view there about 30 years or so ago. It's a Friday. That means, of course, Brent Winters is with us, Roger Sales, Radio Ranch, and People's Patriot Network, our venue. And, of course, it's always uh, great to have Brent on Fridays. Uh, for a lot of different reasons. And, uh, uh, here comes another one on the 18th of January, by the way, Brent, I should say that Greg, our crackerjack engineer in the background there, uh, that we does so much work really, and, uh, con contributes to what we do here. So much has started running your 15 minute shows that we run at another time during the day has uh-huh. started running them the hour before this show starts. So for anybody that wants to get more Brent, it's things we've run before. We got a little bit of a library built up. And so he's running those in the uh, hour immediate to the start of this one. So I guess that would be at uh, 9 o'clock Eastern time. Uh, just I've forgotten to mention it this week since he started doing it. I wanted to throw that out there also. Okay, here's Chris calling in. How you doing today, Brent? Let me bring Chris in while you're telling us how you are.
2: Oh, I'm all right, Roger. I, uh, in the wintertime, hibernate more than I do in the summertime, and that's quite a bit in the summertime. But the cold and the the wet and the dreariness of it all, I just barricade myself up and don't go much any place And uh, work, contemplate, and I get a lot done. But it's odd, Roger. I never get done what I want to get done.
1: Yeah, I think that that's much, probably so. that's that's probably especially true with people that are really driven. You know, like uh, I remember seeing a thing on. Uh, it was uh, uh, the guy Edison. He, 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 if you know anything about his background, he had a very interesting personal routine.
2: Well, I, no, I don't know that. I do know that he, when he was a teenager, he tried to hop a train, and the conductor saw him and grabbed him by the ears and pulled him aboard and his hearing was never right after that
1: wow didn't know that but he was so driven and he just he, he, he can i guess continued to use the mantra that there's just not enough time there's just not enough time and in his laboratory there in orange new jersey i believe is where it was and uh-huh. He never. He didn't have a bed. He had a chair because he would work until he got absolutely uh, overcome with sleep and fatigue. He'd go lay down for two or three hours and get up and start working again. He never had a bed that he slept in, except occasionally. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. I
2: wonder how long he. Wonder how long he lived though.
1: He was an elderly guy, you know. Um. Uh, he certainly. He's one of the two of the. Uh, oh, the great. Americans that accomplished something back in those days, Henry Ford being the other one. There were certainly others, but those two notably because they they were both very well aware of what the enemy was doing at that time and spoke and wrote uh, publicly uh, quite a bit about it, as you and the audience knows.
2: Oh, I see. Well, I know that Ford was deeply aware of the evil empire and who was behind it, and he wrote a book about it but I didn't know Edison.
1: Yeah, it's a very interesting was following that. What's that? Yeah. Him and Edison were big buddies and um, they were particularly criticizing the bond system and the, the way the system was structured as they rolled it into the thirties, but they didn't know what we know. They don't, they didn't know they'd really change it to where the people are property. Okay. But they were big buddies and, and wrote and talked about it quite a bit publicly. Now, Ford, if any listeners didn't know this, he became aware of it as they started. He he noticed strange manipulations in his stock. Okay for uh-huh. company stock, and he started investigating that, and that opened up everything to him and He started writing about it and he 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 would put because of his notoriety he'd put those articles out and they'd get some coverage around the country. but then they came in and bought all uh, control all the control points for all the news dissemination and he couldn't get his articles printed anymore, and so he started his own newspaper called the Dearborn Press and wrote, wrote those articles and published them in the Dearborn Press. And then he took all those articles and put them into, I believe it's a three volume, the original set of books called The International Jew and a copy of each. Those three books went out in the front seat of every Ford automobile that came off the assembly line.
2: Oh, no kidding. Well, the funny thing is, for all of his um, influence that he was able to wield with all of the money that he was able to make, it still didn't accomplish what he wanted it to accomplish. And um, I know that uh, he was innovative in what he did and clever uh, when he dealt with other people. It's amazing the stories of how he did business and how he set up the assembly line and how he he was able to make a little more money here and a little more money there. But then when he got enough money, of course, he said, I want to make sure that the American people, who are the ones that have made me wealthy, I want to make sure that I give back to them and give them a break. So he decided that he would cut the price of the Model T, the Model A, one of the two, I don't remember which, to where he felt like, they'd done the studies, he'd felt like that um, 80% of the people could afford to get one if they wanted to and um uh, the shareholders of ford motor company brought a lawsuit against him in michigan and uh, ford motor company had been incorporated by that time and so the shareholders brought a lawsuit against him and said you can't do that you can't cut prices on your goods when you can get more out of them and they said we invested in this company uh, not to give out charity but to make money and uh, you have to stop you have to raise prices and it went, I believe, if I remember right, it went to the Supreme Court of the state of Michigan. And the Supreme Court of the state of Michigan says, that's right, Mr. Mr. Henry Ford, you can't do this. You're cutting prices on these cars. You've got your money. These shareholders, they, they invested for the sole purpose of making money. They did not invest for any purpose, a given charity or economic breaks to people. They were entered in, into this arrangement at arm's length for profit. And it was one of the foremost cases in America that uh, pointing out and substantiating what corporations can and can't do uh, in the sense that uh, corporations, if they're for a profit, that's the purpose of the corporation, and that's what the corporation is bound to do by law. And if the shareholders want to bring a strike suit against it, they can.
1: I imagine that led up to you just really lit some fires underneath my memory. Uh, in the book, I quoted a few places that i found in a a book i still have with me after leaving the states for 10 years you know one of those kind of special books it's uh, Uh i mentioned it before on the air it's called the collective speeches of congressman lewis t mcfadden Uh And, and there's 31 speeches in there in a three three and a half year period before they killed him there at the end on the fourth try and he lays out everything, and this was back when it wasn't like today when they got special orders there, and you see your congressman on C-SPAN, and there's nobody sitting behind him, right? It's just in front of a camera for constituents. And right. uh, that wasn't this, that way back in these days when McFadden was there. He was up in front of the whole house because it re- records applause and stuff And some of the things I remember reading. So,
2: well, today they have televisions in their office, and they can see what – Goes on inside the, or monitors, I should say. Sure. And so the congressmen don't even go to the floor anymore, Harvey, yeah. just to vote. That's they, the only reason.
1: They probably got a blue and a red button on their desk. <laughs> so, anyway, right. uh, uh, anyway, McFadden was talking about how Ford Motor Company would not sign an agreement with the federal government. Okay? And they were one of the last holdouts in the New Deal. They were a real, real big holdout in the New Deal and a real big cog in the wheel because Ford knew what was happening, and I didn't know about this previous court case, I'm sure it's previous that you just brought up, that had a bearing on why they didn't want to sign any contracts with these Babylonian horse thieves.
2: Well, it seems that uh, Henry Ford, and I don't know what his situation was, in the beginning, my guess is that he didn't have a lot of money, and he had to raise money. And the yep. accepted way to do that back then was to form a corporation and look for investors, Yeah, which I'm sure he did. But then in that turned around and bite him. It took the control see, yep. away from him, Yep, and he wasn't able to do precisely what he wanted to do.
1: Yep, yep. Limited liability and limited control, too, to a point even for a founder. Um, uh-huh interesting stuff so we just got off on that today because uh, we never know where we're going to go with this program i wanted to welcome well, chris. Well, chris that's
2: right roger and i i know people that are wealthy businessmen that uh were up in the billions and they refuse to incorporate anything in other words they own it all personally yep that's unusual but i know some Go ahead,
1: Roger. Or have it in trust or some other vehicle. There's certainly vehicles that fit uh, what you're trying to accomplish as a goal there. I wanted to welcome Chris along. Hey, Chris. Well, I. Don't... Well,
0: good morning to you, Grant and Roger, and thank you very much. I'm really listening very intently, and I find some very salient points being made.
1: Oh, I think we're going to get into some interesting stuff today. Did you get your tire fixed?
0: I did, as a matter of fact. Thank you for asking and remembering, and uh, also lots of interesting things going on.
1: Okay, cool. Boy, I'll say that's an understatement of the week. Yeah, <laughs> right before uh, this kind of the direction we wanted to go, at least to get started here, Chris. I think you'll find this along with the audience of great interest. Okay, popped on it this morning, had it open last night. It's too late to look at and get into, uh, and I like those things in the morning over coffee. And so I'm listening to uh, one of the latest uh, SGT report uh 50 minute or so interviews with a, a a couple and it's on autism and i really highly recommend everybody i wanted to spend some time on this cuz i know it's a it's a big problem out there uh, statistically you hear some of the statistics but there but that people are throwing around out there as to the percentage of uh, young people affected by these vaccines and their repercussions, it's astounding. It does not bode well for the future. The good news is there's certainly ways to help some of those people, but it all starts with awareness and education and admission from some of these people and that these things do have a cause and effect relationship in their lives. At one of the statistics that was quoted in here that kind of surprised me, the biggest rise in the category of 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 murder-suicide is with young mothers with the children that are affected by these shots and these vaccines. Now, that's a tragic statistic right there. Okay,
2: uh, Roger, not too long ago, and this has happened to me in different ways more than once, I sat down. Uh, to eat a meal in a restaurant, and uh, if I'm alone, sometimes I'll just sit up at the bar area, you know, where I can watch the TV or something, and uh, uh, there was a lady there who had a, a young mother, she had a child, and she got to telling me that her child was autistic, And, of course, when that kind of thing happens, a mother's instincts kick in and impel her to do all sorts of things. It's not a small matter to a mother. It's not a small matter to a father either, but even more so to a mother because there is that natural inclination that never dies, never dies, of a mother to rescue her child. It could go on for 40 years. I've watched it, things like that. Well, in this case, she said she had... Dove in and done the research as to what was the matter with her child, and she traced it clearly to the vaccinations that the child had received. And she said, "Of course, I've done more research since then, and it's not a matter of opinion. And I say that too; it's not a matter of opinion. Vaccinations cause autism, and the rise of autism—it was unheard of. Nobody knew what it was. No, it didn't exist until just very recently." And it didn't exist even when vaccinations first began. But um, vaccinations were dangerous when they began, uh, given they began giving them to ch- school children in the 40s and 50s, and the 60s. I remember those things. But now, of course, they're putting things in vaccinations like mercury, and they don't hide it. And I have to ask myself why and what what um, purpose could mercury? Serve in a vaccination. Uh, mercury is poisonous to mankind. The fumes of it, if you heat it up, will kill you, if not drive you mad. Um, uh, Alice in Wonderland. Alice in Wonderland, uh, written by a, a mathematician um, in England, and he, one of the characters that he he creates there is the Mad Hatter. Well, people knew in those old days, back 100, 200 years ago, that people who made hats would go mad. And the reason they went mad was because of the chemicals they used to glue the hats together. And so everybody said that hatters, that's a man that makes a hat for a living. In those days, it was an individual craft. Uh, Men did it individually, maybe have a few helpers. It wasn't done in a factory. But everybody said, if you're a hatter, you're a madman. And they almost all of them would turn mad. They made lots of money, but it didn't really matter because they'd turn mad smelling the fumes of that mercury. And now they're putting it, of course, they started putting it in the fillings of teeth. And you have to ask yourself, why? Oh, Mercury is not a metal that is uh, suited for your teeth in the sense that it's not hard enough to really hold up. And it's extremely, exceedingly, it is burgeoningly poisonous to mankind. Uh, but there it is, right I got, in the vaccination. I Go got a,
1: I got a tidbit for you from a listener. A well, uh, very successful, retired, big-time dentist had big-time clients in a a, a large city, Okay. Uh and uh, was raised Catholic in, in, it was a Jesuit university he graduated from. He's always been around those people, okay? And Uh we met a while back, and so we become friends. He's got kids, children, and one of them just graduated from the same school's dental school. And before Uh they would allow him to have his degree, Everybody in the class had to sign an oath that they would not say anything against mercury fillings or fluoride in the water.
2: Is that right? Well, what in the world? I still don't get it. I mean, I realize how bad things are, and I realize there has always been a conspiracy. No, more than one conspiracy, many conspiracies, but there's been one large one. That's nothing new. Uh, and it's, a conspiracy is not a theory, by the way conspiracy is a fact. It's an historic fact anyone who reads history knows that conspiracy is part of why what is a conspiracy a conspiracy and it's uh, a crime at, at common law. It's the easiest crime probably you could uh, felony you could probably try to prove. Uh, Justice Jackson of the Supreme Court said conspiracy is the darling of the prosecutor's nursery. I'm telling you it's easy it only has two elements to prove and here they are. Uh, you have to prove an agreement. It doesn't have to – it could be a tacit agreement. It doesn't even have to be a written agreement or a spoken agreement, but an agreement. Number two, you have to prove an agreement to commit a crime. That's it. Hey, you show those two – and one – well, you have to add one overt act in furtherance of that agreement. But that overt act could be really small, like uh, something said or a letter or anything. Once you prove that, you got conspiracy. You're going to tell me, somebody say, oh, there are no conspiracy No, there are conspiracies, always have been, and there have been some real big ones. One of them was at Babylon, Babylon, back about 4,200 years ago or so when the city was first founded, Nimrod was the emperor, and there was a conspiracy there. People had agreed to commit a crime. What was the crime? The crime was to not fulfill the fundamental trust agreement that, the maker of man had set out for him. That's what it was. Uh, just don't scatter out across the land. Just stay right here in the city and clump up and do what the emperor tells you. Friends, neighbors, and kin, that's a crime. It's a crime to, to uh, submit yourself to false imprisonment, and that's what happened there. That's why jails are wrong uh, fundamentally, too. But a conspiracy is everywhere, and there is a conspiracy, clearly, to put Mercury in medical products that go into the bodies of men and you have to ask yourself roger why is it that they want to kill they want to kill people is that it
1: no well they do want to do that but you know what i've found with these guys over my years of research over my decades of Uh researching them is they never really do one thing that doesn't that just accomplishes one objective Whatever it is, they multiply their effects exponentially because everything they do accomplishes multiple objectives. 9-11, a perfect example, Murrah Building, you, you just name it all the way back through. It's part of their MO to me. So right. yes they do want they want to cripple you and make you sick cuz then you depend more on the other things that the pharmaceuticals provide and they of course compound with the other stuff you're taking to have other effects that even doctors don't know how some of those things compound with each other. But uh, uh-huh. back to this interview, there were some very startling things at the front of it. That's why I'm going to – I'll put it at the end of today's show notes over on CastBox if I can get it uploaded in the right category. And uh, But it's over at sgtreports.com, I believe is the website. And um, at the first in their interview in this couple – who are heavily involved in sponsoring this big deal up in Chicago, which I'll tell you and give you some dates on. And just so uh, I don't know if any of our listeners have children that are affected with this. Uh, and I know they might know somebody that's got someone that's severely affected with this. Well, this looks like one of the first concrete things I've seen where people in that category can get some relief, and it's in Chicago, and it's March 22nd through the 26th, I believe. I'll get some more specifics. It's all promoted in the video, and uh, it's out by O'Hare Airport, real easily accessible. I know they said they got over 140 experts speaking. And it's a place for for parents and children to find some answers and for people to network and get uh, more of a toehold in the movement against this. And this is part of the reason why these people were talking about uh, something that is ordinarily a subject that's interesting to us here. And that's the U.S. Court of Claims because Ah. the vaccine Court was set up over under the umbrella of the U.S. Court of Claims, but evidently, from what he says in some of his remarks, he says it's an administrative court. There's no uh, depositions and no subpoena power. You may know something about this, Brent, but anyway, let me finish, Chris. We'll discuss it, all right? So there was a case, a class action there, and the way it's set up, by the way, the pharmaceuticals don't have to defend themselves. The federal government uh, uh, prosecutors or a a defense team defends them. And if there's any awards, it doesn't come from the pharmaceuticals. It comes from the taxpayer's budget. (laughs) Okay. Just rigged a little bit there on the front end. All right. And there was a class action lawsuit there. Thousands of cases. And these people had know somebody whose child was in one of those cases. And the quote unquote government expert is a doctor named Zimmerman, and they actually quote towards the end of the video and show you out of his affidavit and uh-huh. he's uh he was in his he was elderly back then, and this was twenty uh twenty years ago or twenty two o seven or some fifteen close to whatever years ago. Uh And he told the government defense team, that pulled him aside and said, under some circumstances, our research has shown adverse relationships in autism in in certain percentage, and they Uh fired him and got up there and lied to the court in this class action suit about it. And they got him cold on this.
2: Uh Uh-huh. Well, you know, the lesson in all this is, my conclusion for what it's worth you don't enter enter into contracts with the government you yep. just don't do that because you have no recourse period the court of claims was established a long time ago we're talking uh, before well it was established uh so that veterans of the mexican-american war back in the 1850s so they could bring their claims against the united states but when it was established um well, later, not long later, Lincoln said, well, I want this court to have final say, uh, no right of appeal from it. Well, Congress then gave right of appeal. Then uh, the Supreme Court of the United States, when people tried to appeal, said we don't have any jurisdiction. Bottom well, line, it's always the same uh, song and dance. You sue the federal government. Uh, it's it's worse. than it. We shouldn't even say good luck. There is no luck. You're not going to collect. And by the way, the court of claims from that time, way back then, in the 1850s, the the Treasury Department, which is the taxpayer, um, paid the costs, as you said, Roger. So this is just silly. It's hokey. It's foolishness. It's window dressing. It's dumb. Don't participate in it. Uh, The way to avoid participating in it is just don't deal with these people because, as the red man always said, and rightly so, um, white man speaketh with forked tongue. Well, when they said that, they were talking to the department about the Department of Indian Affairs. A government is always, it's big enough, and especially now big enough, to always somebody in government can point to somebody else and say, hey, it's not me. I'm not the bad guy. It's those guys over there. Uh, Consider tax cases. They're always that way. The U.S. tax court. Same deal. Oh, yeah. You, a claim. you think you're going to win a case in the U.S. tax court? There have been rare uh-huh. occasions, and I've seen them, where people have prevailed. But in the final analysis, they never really make out that well. You know, you, say, you have to scratch your head after some court cases like that and say, wait a minute, who won here? I can't tell. Did, I, That's did true.
1: I, did I ever yeah. tell you my story about my dear friend David Strait wrote the foreword to my book and his tax case there in the tax court in Atlanta? Have I ever told you I don't that think story?
2: It, I, don't think, I don't think you did, Roger. Well, it's a,
1: it's a pretty interesting story. Chris, did you have something to add before I embark on this?
0: Well, I could talk about Eustace Mullen's book, Murder by Injection.
1: Sure, well, gonna. Creation we're going to. We're going to get back to that for the, the show. We're going to get back to all that uh, autism and all this stuff as we get through the show a little bit, because I'd like it to be kind of the theme. It covers a number of major topics that concern us here. That one particular uh, video, what came out of it, and a possible remedy for some people that maybe are in pain with that. There's a lot of people in pain because of these bureaucrats that have this false jurisdiction that's easily overcomable. Uh, David Strait is now deceased. I I miss him so much. Uh, One of the finest men I ever met, Brent. Uh, An audience. uh, Self-made multimillionaire. uh, Put his money where his mouth was. Real solid, good principles. And very uh, smart. And uh, just an all-around good guy. We became real good friends over our patriot years. And... um, he got into he he built he built a company called Eagles Nest Homes he at one at one point had owned you you've heard of Lincoln Log Homes Oh, yeah. f- well he had, at one point had owned that with another guy as a partner and he went on from that and started his own little prefab building company and he could build these really high quality prefab homes and it wasn't that he was selling homes he was selling a business opportunity because you could buy one of those and if depending on how much work you wanted to do yourself you could get in and, and get that thing built for maybe 50 percent of the market price or maybe even less and then you live uh-huh. in that house and promote that. And uh, as, as a rep and he had reps all over the world, He, uh, 19 countries at one point he was exporting to did real well. Okay. Uh, was the only maker of these homes in the world that could import into Germany because of the high standards. Uh-huh. So anyway, David did quite well, led quite the life and, um, in those earlier years in the home ownership business, he had used a certain accounting method. And when he went to open the one that he really made his money in, his own, called Eagle's Nest Homes there north of Atlanta, and he got with the IRS and the accountant and all that, I'm going to use this accounting method, this, we've used it before, this, gets the blessings. Well, he got politically active and started writing in the newspaper and stuff. In fact, he went, he started a campaign and we got the Constitution passed as a county ordinance in Cherokee County, Georgia. So on top of the county ordinances, it's the U.S. Constitution passed. On top of that, there was a big deal at the county commission meeting and 100 and something people there and all kinds of stuff. It was a big event. But that's the kind of stuff he did and spearheaded. Okay. And so uh-huh. uh, David is gotten his new company going, and he's, all of a sudden he gets the IRS comes up to the door. They go, we need to ask you about your accounting methods. And he goes, okay, no problem. This is it. You okayed it. I used it here before in these businesses, this, that, and the other. And the guy goes, okay, well, no problem, and they sign off on it. Six months uh-huh. later, another IRS agent comes back, sits down, goes over and says, No, we're disallowing all that. Yo is $750,000. Uh huh. And so David, being who David was, takes him up through the system and he gets up to tax court. Now, this is where it gets uh-huh. interesting. He had the money and uh-huh. the awareness, and there was an attorney, I think his name is Mims, over in Houston. That was the one that won that $10 million uh-huh. judgment against the oh, IRS? Uh, the,
2: the lawyer, the lawyer you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I know who you're talking about. I've met him. I know you. I don't know if he's still around. I haven't heard from him in a long time. Well, he
1: hired him. About him, right? He hired him. Who? He hired him. Oh, okay. David hired him for this case. And so uh-huh. in okay. Atlanta, the tax court is down in the 11th Circuit, a beautiful old turn-of-last-century building majestic building down there by the way and the tax courts Uh up in one of the catacomb floors upstairs and you go up there Uh and and so a bunch of us supported david i'd never been to tax court hadn't been before or since but i was there this day and i got to meet this attorney because i was close to david you know and and so uh if he's a little bitty guy about five foot four okay and he told me, he David told me, or he told us that uh, his um, he went to law to a law school and graduated with a tax degree, and went wor- went to work for the IRS for like five years, four or five years, uh-huh. and in that four or five years, his father wouldn't speak to him.
2: <laughs> oh, man.
1: okay so he got finished working for the irs to go out here and start fighting them and i thought this was what really struck me i'll never forget it here's this little diminutive guy okay sharp Uh as attack by the way and but you know what he does on his vacations what goes to africa and does big game hunting with a bow and arrow to keep his responses sharp for court
2: Oh, I see. He woke up.
1: (laughs) So, in this trial, in this mock trial in tax court, they get the group leader of the IRS up there, and he, because of his expertise and skill, is able to get her to admit she changed the figures in his case on Uh the stand under oath. And it was right Uh at the end of the day, Five ish Atlanta traffic is notorious. Um and the judge went absolutely apoplectic. Okay.
2: That's a big word, Roger. Yes Roger. it is. Well that's
1: one of them college words. It means he got real PO'd, <laughs> okay? And he closed the court, dismissed the court, called called counsel back in his chambers and reamed them. And the next day, when they commenced, they got the group leader up there, and the thing went on. Nothing was done to her, and and David finally had to stroke him a check for $750,000. Fortunately, he had the money to do that and could walk away from it. But that guy Wait, caught that group leader Everybody lying again. on the stand under oath, and nothing was done, and it didn't change the outcome. Now, tell me. Yeah. There may be rare occasions you can win in tax court, but there ain't damn very many of them.
2: No, I I agree, and I've never seen an all-out win. I've never seen one. I've seen people that have gained maybe a little here but lose a little there. But I've never seen a person go in and say, look, the IRS is wrong. No, I'm not saying there isn't, and I'm sure people that practice in that area all the time, maybe they've seen one. But by and large, you're just beating your head against the wall. You're not gonna get anywhere with these folks. Those tax courts are the president's courts, which means uh, well that's technically true, but really what they are is the is the uh the, the Federal Reserve Bank's court, that's what it is. And the Federal Reserve Bank, of course, controls the Treasury Department, and the Treasury Department controls the IRS. That's the way it works, that's the reality of the way the system works in America. And once you get that in your head, you won't be saying things like "they can't do that." Nothing to do. Any blasted thing they want, and they will. My suggestion to you is: I say to people, stay out of their way. And if you're wise and sharp, you can stay one step ahead of them. But if you get behind them, it's not going to work. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, I wanted to ask you, are you familiar with John and Glenn's work on the, on the tax system and its origins and how it used to work and all that, the comparative view? Because it's pretty interesting, especially here in tax court, because that was the remedy in the old system in England. But they've jerry-rigged it over here. Are you familiar with that?
2: Well, yeah, but, but yeah, I've read some of their stuff. I haven't read all of it, Roger. But in England, it was jury rigged too, as far as I can tell, going back a few centuries.
1: Well, the way I mean, that... they
2: were using... Roger and Task Court, they were using engines of torture.
1: Well, well no, that, that, mean, that, that, that's, the, that's the Star Chambers, all right? But the, well, the way that...
2: Chamber, yeah, but and, I was saying the Star Chambers supported the what they called the Exchequer Court. It was all the same bunch, but go ahead.
1: Well, uh, the way I think the system was brought in when they brought it in from the statute towns, because Henry VIII is the one that went back. It had been applied in the statute towns, uh, uh, staple towns, they called them, for hundreds of years, and it worked like a snap. And it was Henry VIII, I think, as you know, that brought the system in and said I, it worked so well. I'm going to bring it into the Exchequer. And at that point, the way that from P- Chitty and Price and the old authors on the on the process, you uh-huh. get they you, you either you got into a tax obligation one of two ways. You either volunteered into a statute staple. Or else if you didn't file, if you will, they'd go out and send out an inquisition from the exchequer board. And they'd come out and talk like IRS today. They'd go talk to your neighbors. And as he's spending a lot of money, he's got a lot of big fancy. Excuse me, my stomach's wanting to backlash on me. Some horses out there. Is he running wild women? All that kind of stuff. And they'd come back. And if you hadn't filed, then they'd come up with an assessment. And they'd put it on a thing. I think they called it the parchment roll. And then uh-huh. the the office where the inquisitioners uh, or the council members, whatever I can't remember, the board members would be, was directly above where they had the assessment. And that uh-huh. office down below was called the office of the pipe. Because there was a pipe connecting the two, and when they would do one of these, they would roll it up, and like in a bank today, when you go make a deposit or whatever, (laughs) that thing, well, they'd like shoot it down that pipe, down to the lower office, and then they would record it on the assessment roll. All right? Uh So at that point, if it had come through the Inquisition fork, you had a chance to challenge it. But in the tax court, like in tax court, if you don't agree with it, you can challenge it. 90-day letter, I think they call it, right? Yeah. yeah. And, mm-hmm. and now, uh, uh, back then, you could petition to take it to court, but it was a common law court, and you had a jury of your peers. And then they had to prove it. Well, they've switched that. Obviously, we don't have any common law courts in the tax area. And uh, if you are one of us, you sure as heck ain't getting a jury of your peers with a bunch of serfs looking over you. Uh, But that's the way the old process was. and You can see how they brought it over, tweaked it a little bit to what they want to accomplish, switched it where you got to be the plaintiff because you've got to sue tax court. So you're the plaintiff always, which means you got the burden of proof.
2: And that's a good point, Roger. When you go to tax court, they don't go to tax court. You're the one that says, I want to sue you and go to tax court. Yep. But again, it's not a court. It's, nope. it's just nothing but the executive branch deciding what they're going to do with you. And by the way, none of the rules of evidence, none of the common law due process rules are required in tax court. Uh, they try to follow them if they can. and do so quite a bit just to put on a good show for everybody so they feel like they're getting a fair shake. But they don't have to, and when push comes to shove and they don't know what else to do, they just do whatever they want. It's like any administrative court. It is an administrative court. That means that it is a court under the executive branch of government, and um, they have no real judicial power. The Constitution of the United States says all judicial power is in the uh, judicial branch. All executive power is in the executive branch, and all legislative power is in the legislative branch. And to confuse those is a gross violation of the way we do things in America. It's a, it's a violation of our common law tradition of government. It's a violation of the law of the land. That is the Constitution of the United States. And tax court is a clear violation. All administrative courts are. Administrative courts were not accepted in America before Roosevelt. The well, well, New Deal is the one that pushed all that all that through, and it has... Destroyed us as a people.
1: The nice thing is. No
2: liberty. Go ahead, Roger. If
1: you're not a citizen of the United States or a resident of the 14th Amendment, you don't have to be there. There's a choice.
2: I mean, we can can talk about all the minutiae of statutes and laws and regulations and go into court and argue them. It's meaningless in many cases. Uh, if you can't just argue flat the Constitution of the United States and what the fundamental right is that's being violated by this overburden of 75,000 feet of regulations, if you can't cut through all that, the matted mess of it, and just say no. You know, Carl Llewellyn, he was a legal philosopher back in the 40s. He's American, and he wrote a lot of books about our tradition, our system, and he he, uh, even uh, during the New Deal, he, he said, oh, okay, okay. Well, yeah, I see that this is a good idea. Okay, I'll go along. And he went along. Like a lot of lawyers did, it puzzles me. I mean, people who had never even hardly been to school knew better than that stupidity. But that's what happens when you get too big for your intellectual britches. So they went along with it. Well, Carl Llewellyn, later on in the 1940s, after, he had seen what the New Deal did, which was nothing but pure uh, executive power from the president. He said this he said I've changed my views the administrative process the bureaucratic state leads us into wilds wilds of administrative law where we get hopelessly lost in our search for justice yep we want justice we want a fair shake we want due no. court and administrative courts control the governments of America no question. Well, it's, to, it, it's
1: your way of presenting this is so easy to grasp, and that's the laws of the city versus the laws of the land. I, I mean, yeah, anybody can get their arms around that, okay?
2: Yeah. Uh-huh. So, administrative, uh, administrative law is one of about four forms that we can clearly identify of the law of the city. It's all the same stuff. It's a martial military law where you don't have any due process. That's all it is. It's not a true court. You know, you could take the Bill of Rights, for example, Roger, that are listed in the uh, Bill of Rights of the Constitution of the United States. Those are utterly meaningless without the rest of the Constitution because the rest of the Constitution uh, gives us not what we should do but how we should do it. And if we don't have due process, the Bill of Rights is a dead letter. And due process, interestingly, of course, some of the Bill of Rights is a guarantee of due process, just so we can have the other things in the Bill of Rights that are important, you know, the right to keep and bear arms. Without um, the right to remain silent, the right to trial by jury, for instance, the presumption of innocence, which, has found, which the court, uh, Supreme Court has found to be an inherent right in our Constitution, not listed explicitly, the presumption of innocence. All of those things uh, are how things are to be done. And uh, with the administrative courts... Due process is just window dressing as long as we can use it and it, uh, get, still get what we want.
1: It's an, illu- right. it's, it's an illusion of due process. Yeah. Just like oh, your, yeah. your citizenship, your birthright citizenship is an illusion of American citizenship. Oh, and, and really, the better word for all this is not even because the illusion when it, it works, it gets it across to uh-huh. people. But the better uh-huh. word for it is simulation. It's a simulation of freedom. It's a simulation of due process, and it's been rigged behind the scenes, and it's a certificate of title to your car. Uh, you know, all of these things are nothing but simulations, and they give them the illusion veneer that they've been well, they able to pull off, man. Uh, they've, uh, it's amazing. Yeah, Brent and I'll turn it It's amazing that they've pulled this off to the extent yeah. and degree that they have. But buddy, they've done it. Okay, now uh, they've turn done right. it,
2: Yeah, and it and it never stops at every point. And the word I see the, the word illusion may not be just accurate, but it's a powerful word, and our common law uses that word to describe what you're talking about. We talk about, for example, illusory promises, illusory contracts. You think they're a contract when you first glance at them, but they aren't. Take, for example, Roger, and I remember reading this back 35 years ago, the Bill of Rights of the USSR, the communist state of russia back a long time ago the bill of rights of the communist state of russia makes our bill of rights look anemic it's that explicit that comprehensive it's a beautiful bill of rights trouble is it is utterly meaningless because due process is never available in the law of the city country and Russia, just like China and just like Japan, just like all of South America, they're all under the same, Germany, they're all under the same code, Italy, the same code, fundamentally, the code of Justinian in its various forms. And uh, the Russian Constitution, with its Bill of Rights, oh, that was beautiful, people read, oh, my goodness, who could disagree with this? But none of those things were ever enjoyed for this reason. There was no due process, and the rest of the Constitution did not describe due process. Our Constitution of the United States is a brief of common law government. It is process. It is process-oriented. Not of what the Congress is supposed to do, but how in the world do you become a congressman? What are the requirements? What is the process of a bill being passed through Congress? Uh, what is the relationship between the three branches of government? Uh, that's all a matter of the way things are to be done, and without the way things are to be done, being in place, as is our Constitution of the United States. The Bill of Rights is absolutely dead, as it was in Russia, and they had a better one than us by far, to stress that point. And this is true. People often ask, well, if other countries had our Constitution, it'd be just as good. And the answer is, no, it wouldn't. It wouldn't be just as good. Our Constitution is the result of centuries, centuries of a culture that is almost, you can't say it's genetic, but as part of who we are in a way it isn't in any place else in the world except, of course, the English-speaking world, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, England, and the per- protectorates they've had. It has become so ingrained in us as a people that – and we don't even realize there's that much of a difference. But we just were appalled. We'd say, well, of course we're entitled to right to trial by jury. Well, they don't say that in the rest of the world because they simply aren't and never have been. Our Constitution, Mexico took our Constitution, Roger. And they uh, took the phrases out of it, of course, in Spanish. They took the phrases out of it, uh, uh, of our Constitution, and just put them in their own. And they called it the Mexican Constitution of 1824. And using the Mexican Constitution of 1824, which was substantially like ours, they persuaded 20,000 American Anglos... Into Texas because they needed to populate the place and they couldn't get the Mexicans to go up there. Why? Well, the Mexicans didn't have that in their blood to do. That's why they didn't have it in their blood. For whatever reason, I I should say in their blood, it was not their blood. It, It was a matter of religion. It was a matter of religion and the religion controlled their government and they couldn't get them to do it. So the Americans went down there in droves based upon the promise of the Mexican government that they would adhere to the Constitution of 1824 of Mexico. And they had it in place. It was the law. They never used it. Never, ever used it. And that's why the Mexican, the war with the Texicans in Texas occurred, was because they never used that constitution. We, as Americans, uh, what do we do to, uh, and this is my great ambition, and it will be as long as I'm breathing, I hope, how do you get people to appreciate What we have, it didn't just happen at a a sweaty room in Philadelphia when they hammered out the Constitution. No, they were just trying to put in place in words the unwritten Constitution of England and tweak it to make it better. And nothing changed in America after our break from Britain substantially. We just said we want to hark back and reestablish what the British have been weak on for the last three or four centuries. That's what we want to do. We want to go back to Magna Carta before Magna Carta, just as James Wilson first justice on the first uh, or the first, the justice on the first panel of the United States Supreme Court wrote extensively about this. Roger we talk about Erie Railroad versus Tompkins and I know you're I know you're familiar mentioned with that it. Case. Mentioned
1: it yesterday actually. Yeah, in
2: 19 1938 uh, began in 1934 in a little town in um uh in, in New York a fellow by the name of um, of uh, Tompkins, a young fellow, 27 years old, walking home down a path by a railroad, walking home from his mother in law's. He would uh, hitched a ride with some people, had stayed there on a Saturday night. Uh, chances are he'd probably been drinking, uh, but that was never brought out in the trial, but certainly. He had been probably drinking, who knows what happened. We only have his testimony, and he says he was walking. The train started coming. He saw the lights. He was walking down that side path right by the railroad track back to his house. His friends had let him out at the railroad crossing. He'd walked that path a lot of times. Here come the train. He didn't worry about it. He'd had that happen a lot of times. And uh, he said the lights of the train then came by, and the thing was blowing its whistle, headed for the crossing. And uh, all of a sudden, he's walking, and he sees something uh, hoist up, rear up in front of him. He instinctively says, put his arms up. And when he put his arms up, he was struck. And the next thing he remembers, he woke up in a hospital, and his arm was gone. Well, what happened was, there was a man there, um, uh, about 1:00, 1 o'clock, 1, one thirty in the morning, uh, He, him and his wife in bed, they heard, screaming in the street out in front of their house, little tiny town of about 2,400 people. And the Erie railroad went right through the middle of it. Very small town, heard people screaming. He gets up, puts on his britches and his shirt. And his wife said, where are you going? I'm going out to see what's going on. She said, don't go out there. Them guys out there are crazy. Well, that's normally what a wife would say. He said, no, I've got to see what's going on. He went down the front door and bang, bang, bang on his door before he could get there. A neighbor came and said, there's been an accident. And he ran outside, and he found uh, Harry, I believe his name was Harry James Tompkins, crumpled up beside the railroad track, unconscious, and his arm was laying between the rails, and he was on the outside of the rail. Uh, and went to the hospital, they took off the rest of the stub of his arm, and he, uh, he healed quickly, and he came home, and but he was unable to work. He had been a union member and had been a molder in a in a steel works. He had uh, started there at age 14, dropped out of high school, and had become pretty skilled. And He was very proud of it, but he could no longer work. But we got to talking to this fellow who was of Eastern European descent, who was very wealthy, who had a bunch of shirt factories up and down the East Coast. He wanted—he was from New York City. He wanted to avoid New York City because uh, that's where the union trouble was, so we established these shirt manufacturing little places, sweatshops, some people would call them, up and down the coast, and he had a son, he was pretty well off, and he had a son that uh, he had sent to the University of Pennsylvania, Penn, or Penn State, rather, and a uh, boy had dropped out and decided he wanted to be a lawyer, came back to New York City and uh, worked for law offices and went to New York University Law School uh, night classes until he got his law degree, and then he opened up a opened up a law office right down in the middle of New York City, I believe it was on Wall Street, uh, the, right after right after the October of 1929, an infamous date to Americans. Well, there wasn't any money, and he waited five years before a client walked into his office. And it happened to be um, the man, Harry Tompkins, who had been talking to his father, who was the wealthy shirt manufacturer, who referred him to this lawyer who had never tried a case and never had a client for five years. So... <laughs> This fellow took the case up, and he had a partner. that He was renting a space in, in a bigger firm's uh, building or office. They did some serious research, and they said, well, Erie Railroad is a, is, a, is a New York corporation, and Harry James Tompkins is a citizen of Pennsylvania. So you've got two litigants here from two different states. Which court do you go in? Do you go into the State Court of Pennsylvania, the State Court of New York, or do you go into the Federal Court of Pennsylvania or the Federal Court of New York? Well, they thought and thought and thought, and they said, well, we've got, as a lawyer ought to recognize, we've got diversity jurisdiction under the Constitution of the United States in federal court. Let's go to federal court. But then that gave them two options. Which federal court? The federal court where Harry James Tompkins had his accident which is where the accident occurred and the, the jurisdiction would lie there or should we go to the court where the corporation, uh, Erie Railroad has its headquarters, offices and, and where it's incorporated and is a citizen, as it were the corporation is a citizen of the state of New York well they said we better go to New York of course the reason they went to New York was they weren't licensed to practice in Pennsylvania federal courts they were from New York so that's where the the case went it went to New York and it went to the federal court, and I think it might have been, but I don't remember, the Southern District down there, the famous kind of court in New York, and um, tried the case. And uh, here's, here was the question in the case, Roger. This case is misunderstood, been in my observation, in my humble opinion, by everybody I've ever read who's ever said the case. I think it's a simple case. The only people that didn't mis- wouldn't have misunderstood it were um, uh, Joseph Story, who had been long since dead, and he was the author of Swift versus Tyson, which had overturned, and um, maybe uh, Justice James Wilson of the U.S. Supreme Court that, l- that was on the court before Story I'd mentioned him a while ago. What this case was this? Well, it was, it was tried, and uh, uh, then it was appealed up to this, uh, the Federal Circuit, and then it was eventually appealed to the Supreme Court of the United States, And the Supreme Court of the United States overturned that case from the 18, about back in the 1840s, I believe it was, Swift versus Tyson. Swift versus Tyson. Swift versus Tyson said this, I think it was authored by Justice Story. It said that um, when there's a diversity jurisdiction case, that's where two people, citizens of two different states, that's diversity, jurisdiction, our Constitution of the United States says that federal courts have jurisdiction, if people want it, between citizens of two different states. And the reason is, of course, they, they don't know which state court to go in, and if you go into one state court, you're not going to get a fair shake because you go into the state court of one party, uh, that state court's going to be biased toward that party, especially if it's a, a corporation, for example, like a railroad. So um, Swift versus Tyson said in such a case that the federal courts are to use what is called uh, what is called general common law. And uh, the people that, the, the, the lawyer for Harry James Tompkins that lost his arm, uh, lawyers would call that an arm-off case. They have a leg-off case, an arm-off case. It was a big case. But the lawyers, they noticed that they had diversity jurisdiction, but what they didn't know was what law to apply. If they applied the Pennsylvania law, the Pennsylvania law says that um, railroads are not liable for accidents on their own property, namely the railroad right away. They're not liable for that, um, and uh, the only way they could be liable if it is if they intentionally tried to injure or kill somebody. In other words, if you're walking down a path in Pennsylvania at that time by a railroad on their property— Uh, They didn't owe any real duty of care to you at all. And if an accident occurred that wasn't intentional, it's your problem, not theirs. But every other state in the United States took a different position. Every other state in the United States said that if you're walking along a railroad track and something happens to you uh, through negligence, then the railroad is liable. And in this case, uh, Harry Tompkins testified that there was something, a door on a railroad car swung open and hit him. That's what he said, knocked him under the... The car and his arm was cut off by the wheels. Well, in every other state, that's what they said, except Pennsylvania. So um, the one side, Harry James Tompkins, that they didn't want to go to court in Pennsylvania. I forgot to mention this because if they would went there, they would have lost yep. easy. So they went, yeah. So they 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 went to New York court and they argued and they said uh, general law should apply. That's Swift versus Tyson uh, from the eighteen forties. Well, then they went to read the Judiciary Act of 1789, which was in force, and it said that in cases of diversity jurisdiction, uh, the I don't remember the exact word, but it says that the general law shall apply, or the, yeah, the cases of the states shall apply where they shall apply, in cases in which they apply, cases shall apply, in cases where they should apply. And, of course, the question was there, what in the world does that mean? And, frankly, it doesn't mean anything. So (laughs) you have to find uh, where a court has said what this Judiciary Act of 1789 means. And what Swift versus Tyson essentially said was this, uh, and this is what uh, the interpretation was. You take all the the positions of all the state courts and you say which uh, position uh, prevails. Uh, Most of the states uh, believe this. So that's the law that should be applied in federal court. Well, that's what uh, Erie overruled. Erie said that the court of the state, for example, where the accident occurred, which is the old common law rule when there's a conflict of laws and conflict of jurisdictions, the law of the state where the accident uh, occurred uh, should should apply. But Swift versus Tyson also said this. They said in, uh, that uh, that is the rule, but in cases where there is unique unique interests Then the law of the state should apply not the law of, not the common law of the federal courts well real property such as a railroad right away is unique all land according to our common law is unique you can in other words if you have a contract to buy a piece of land uh, and you breach the contract money damages the courts won't just give the other fellow money damages no they'll they'll give him the land itself uh, some works of art are unique, like that. If money damages don't suffice at common law. If they're classed as unique, you get the thing itself. If there's a breach of contract, well, uh, right of way of a railroad is unique, so it has to do with land. So the Supreme Court of the United States uh, ruled. A uh, opinion written by Justice. Uh, um, well, I'm trying to think. I lost it. No, not not Cardozo. Yeah, Cardozo. No, no, not Cardozo. Brandeis wrote the justice. Mm. There were two Jewish justices on the court at that time, the first two, as far as I know. And Brandeis wrote the—Cardozo uh, uh, didn't participate in the oral arguments because he was sick of the Ill- illness that would kill him within a couple of months, and he died shortly after that. Cardozo wasn't on the Supreme Court very long. His fame occurred on the New York Court of, uh, of, uh, of Appeals. Uh, That's where he uh, wrote all of his memorable opinions that have uh, have become so influential. But uh, Cardozo, or um, um, Brandeis, wrote the opinion. Uh, Justice Charles Evan Hughes was the chief justice of the Supreme Court at that time. And he was the son of Welsh immigrants. And uh, he was all for overturning Tyson. Matter of fact, the whole court wanted to overturn Tyson. And what the overturning of of Tyson Swift versus Tyson did, and this is what I, I, I don't hear people saying, it said the the laws the common law of the state prevails, not the it was a restriction of federal power. That's what Erie versus Tompkins was. It didn't do away with common law. The common law still prevails in all of our courts. It it was a matter of which law do you use, and they said and here. But here was the, I suppose the ugly thing about it. What they were saying was essentially, you know, people interpreted it this way, they didn't say this. They, they were going with the idea that there is no brooding omnipresence of law, that everybody is responsible to know. That's the way people have interpreted it. I don't think they said that. The, there was nothing that said, they, they might have said we'd done away with the common law in the federal courts, but that's a misnomer. That wasn't done. That was just a stupid, that's stupid to even think that's possible in the way they said it's possible. Is the common law done away in the, with, with in the federal courts? Well, as a matter of practicality in many cases, yes. But as a matter of law, no, never. We still have trial by jury. We still have the Fourth Amendment. We still have the First Amendment, the, the Second, the Third. The Second Amendment, the federal courts rule. Do you have a personal right to bear a weapon? That was just in 2008 or nine. So the common law, and those are all common law rights, are still in the federal courts. Erie versus Tompkins stood for the proposition that uh, the, the federal courts are not to apply whatever they believe is to be the law, uh, just loosely, whatever the judge believes is to be the law, but they are to apply the law of, of the state that has the right to have its law applied in that case. The accident occurred in Pennsylvania. Therefore, the, the, uh, the, uh, the Erie Railroad was in Pennsylvania operating, doing business, Therefore, the law of Pennsylvania must apply, and the law of Pennsylvania says that um, uh, the railroad didn't owe him any duty of care, and therefore he couldn't recover. That's the that was a sad result, but that's that's what the uh, uh, Erie Tompkins stood for. It was a restriction of federal judicial power. Back to you, Roger.
1: It's interesting that uh, duty of care aspect. Boy, that's a mouthful. Um, I can, and I think we've touched on this before, and I can remember. What John said in, in his seminars about this, and he didn't go to anywhere near the depth that you did, okay? Uh, just a guy got walking along the railroad side of the track got hit with a board or something that was sticking out of one of the cars. And what the thumbnail that he gave us was exactly what you touched on a minute ago, which seems to be kind of accurate in a sense, is that there is no more federal common law. But what you're saying is it just can't be applied to federal common law in the courts because wherever the accident happened is the jurisdictional nexus and the state law applies to that. Now, I also thought it was very interesting that you said that Pennsylvania's state law on this duty of care was different from every other one of the states at the time.
2: Right. That's
1: particularly interesting to me because it seems like that there should be a duty of care there for things like that.
2: Yeah, for the privileges that railroads had at that time, and that's why every other state took a different. The courts took a different position, but it's important to recognize also what Theory versus Tompkins—that case only applies in diversity jurisdiction right. cases, which yeah. at that time weren't that big a deal, and still aren't. But there isn't that many. There are some, but it's not the biggest deal. But it's restricted to that alone. Diversity jurisdiction, which occurs when a citizen from one state sues a citizen from another state, uh, they have the option, according to the Constitution of the United States, and to go, they can go into a federal court to do that. That way, the idea is that the forum, uh, the the court, will be more fair less bias for one state or another because it's a different sovereignty it's the federal courts deciding between citizens of two states go ahead
1: i gotta get doug hooked in here he wants to join us and i kind of got to do things back asswards these days with skype so he'll join us in a second here um, and i can understand that now there's if i remember right from my paralegal training uh, i think doug's with us if i can remember right from my paralegal training brent there's a couple of prongs of tests, I think they call it legally, to get a case into the federal district court. And one of them is this diversity aspect. And if you've got any case let's uh, uh, where uh, there's two different citizens uh, of different states, that is a qualifier for you to have standing in federal court on that case. What are the other ones, uh, Brent? Brent? Right, because I don't remember the other ones. I just remember that diversity of citizenship one.
2: Well, there's diversity jurisdiction. Then there's also original jurisdiction of the Supreme Court of the United States, so questions having to do with treaties and and ambassadors and things. But the other jurisdiction is the jurisdiction, a federal question jurisdiction. A federal question jurisdiction uh, is available where the question between two litigants uh, arises under this is the key words of our course arises under the the Constitution and laws and treaties of the United or law, constitution of laws and laws of the United States. The laws of the United States um, are not constitutional if they are contrary to the uh, the laws of the United States government not the states I'm talking about. I'm talking about the laws of the of, of Congress that the president signs. Uh, if th- those laws are passed, they have a presumption of being constitutional. In other words, in furtherance mm-hmm. of the powers that the Constitution has has carved out for the federal government and that the states have agreed to uh, allowing the federal government to have. But those can be challenged. But where there's a, a constitutional question and, and the question of the statutes of the laws of the United States, there's what we call federal question jurisdiction. Uh, now, in diversity jurisdiction, I forgot to add, uh, back when i first started uh, in, in law school diversity jurisdiction required that you plead at least $10,000 in damages there must be at least $10,000 worth of damages mm-hmm. at stake mm-hmm. and then later later it became $50,000 and now I, I I know it's over. It's over a hundred thousand dollars. I don't remember if it's gone up since then or not. But it's harder and harder to get into federal courts. You've got to plead a lot of damages to get into federal court.
1: That's called inflation.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I believe. I'm trying to think. I think when at Erie Tom Erie Railroad versus Tompkins, the the you had to plead at least three thousand dollars worth of damages at that time. That was in 1934. And then it was $10,000 when I, I was in school, and I it's much more than that now. Yeah. Well,
1: I can tell you from my personal experience, 30 years ago when you sent the IRS one of those affidavits and you did not have it on file with the Secretary of State first, which we didn't know back then, unfortunately, uh-huh. uh, we received a $500 frivolous filing penalty. And now if you send one in, do not do this. I mean, I've told people not to do it, and they do it anyway. I, it just amazes me. Do not send one of those affidavits to the IRS before you've established it in your administrative file at the Secretary of State, because that little five hundred dollar frivolous filing penalty is now five thousand.
2: Wow. Yeah. Okay. That, that's 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 oppressive, though. To to. It's all, of, all of this administrative law, that's utterly oppressive. Some guy, he, in good faith, he's just uh, an American. He wants to file a piece of paper, and he doesn't know that somebody said you can't because he can't uh, wade through 40, four or five years of research, and he gets fined $5,000. That's silly, utterly silly. Yep. I, I, can't, I can't say too many ugly things about it. And I would say this to anybody that's listening that's a bureaucrat. You're the problem you say well i'm i'm just doing my job well just quit doing your job that's and what they, get out of it that's what they and go get a real job that's productive that's what this they this not productive go ahead
1: that's what they said at nuremberg uh, i had two cases of uh, of pretty good irs news i don't know if i can find the stories i got so many tabs open here right off the bat but one of them is uh, the irs has admitted that it gives, I sent you these articles, uh, Brent, right for the show today. IRS uh, has admitted that it gives, encourages illegals to get bogus social security numbers. Okay? Oh. So, yeah. we got an admission of out of that here recently. And the other good news is, uh, actually the a number of these 501C3 Tea Party type groups in the Lois Lerner thing that were so harmed by john mccain's one of his chief staff urging the irs to go after him uh they're all receiving uh awards from that uh from the government thousands of dollars there's about 50 or 50 or more of them so there is some remedy there somewhere brent i sent you something you and patrick The other night, Uh I forwarded something uh, Daryl had sent us a while back. He sent me Uh a couple of days ago on a a section here on all of this standing stuff uh, between Uh state citizens and these federal courts. And I I wish you'd look over that when and if you got the time and give us a brief on that because it's something that is particularly intriguing to me as to how to interact with these new courts there that are for the serfs. If you're not one of the serfs, but without belaboring it too much, I also want to get Doug take the, took the trouble and time to call in. He's always got something interesting and spiritual to add. Doug, how you doing up there in Northwest Arkansas?
0: Oh, I'm doing well. And, uh, well, I'm doing well because I'm listening to your show with, uh, you and Brent and Chris is there in the background. And uh, so I'm really thankful
1: good thank you me too i'm happy to be able to do this show and have this platform and brent and the things that we discuss you know i think it says in the bible don't give me milk give me meat and i'd like to think we bring meat to the table here on fridays brent
2: oh i do too if i think it gets to the i I don't want to avoid the weight here matters as a matter of fact, I want to focus on the weightier matters. The weightier matters are really all that matters. And what are the weightier matters? The weightier matter Due process. The way things are done. Not all the statutes, the minutia. You know, I was listening to a Supreme Court Justice the other day. I like to do that if I think they've got anything to say. And uh, he said, somebody said something to him about a certain case, and they named it, and he said, I wrote that opinion. I wrote that opinion. He said, I'd forgotten what the name of it was. I didn't remember the names. And I thought to myself, well, you know, that's the way I'm getting as I get older. It, the names don't matter. The The verse and chapter don't matter. The sightings don't matter. The minutia doesn't matter. What matters? He remembered the case, and he remembered what the guts of it were. I even read books now, and people say, well, I'll quote a book and or an author, and they say, what's the name of the book? Oh, I don't have a clue. Did you read it? Oh, yeah, I read the book. How long ago? Oh, about two months ago. And you don't remember the name of the book? And I say, no, I don't remember the name of the book. I do remember the author. Sometimes I'll re- I remember, remember authors before I remember the names of the book because I remember I want to find more things this fellow's written if it's good. But all of those names and the packaging and the, the, the chapter, those, are, those aren't important, not even a little bit. Matter of fact, uh, the more you, you wrestle with all this, the more you re- realize and the more you come to grips with what Jesus Christ said to the Judaics of his day. He said, uh, you, uh, you, have, uh, you have ignored the weightier matters of the law, the controlling matters. The matters that if you'd pay attention to would control all else. You you failed to clean the inside of the cup, and therefore the out, excuse me, the outside stays exceedingly dirtier, uh, dirty, and that's the problem. You're full of dead men's bones. Your mouth is an open sepulcher. The poison of asps is under your lips. You're evil because you're you you look. You're trying to put some kind of uh, good show on the outside. You wear nice clothes. You rub lotion on your skin. Whatever you do, you're wasting your time. Because you're rotten, and you're rotten from the inside out, and it's going to start coming out pretty soon, and it always does. So, yeah, I want to focus on the weightier matters, Roger. I, I'm, I'm big on that, too. Go ahead.
1: I just popped you a little something somebody sent me the other day. It's an hour-long lecture from the, uh, the late Justice Scalia on statutory interpretation. I thought you might want to watch that.
2: Well, Roger, uh, I'm looking at your uh, your messages, and I'm not seeing that. I, I popped over here to look real quick. Well, so
1: they Go they're ahead. down there at the bottom in the uh um in the IM tray. Uh, oh, I got it. I okay. was
2: looking. I was looking at your yeah, uh, yeah No, you got to
1: get it from the network. We're over on that profile. Patrick Patrick's joined us. I know he's probably got something to say, but Doug didn't even get ten words out, which is pretty unusual. Uh, so uh, let me defer to him first. Douglas, I know you come always with something to add.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you for that. I appreciate your appreciation. Uh, Yeah, I think it's appropriate that um, Brent brought up weightier matters because I do have a couple of things on my mind. There's a saying, a pound is a pound all the world round. Okay, it, and that's true. If we had the same um, standards, measurements, etc., and the thing, uh, what I'm referring to here is uh, the creators, our heavenly fathers, just weight and measures. He demands just weight and measures, whatever subject it applies to, and. Um, uh, so, uh, you guys were talking about jurisdiction and, and this guy getting, uh, getting his arm cut off and I immediately thought, Oh, okay. So the guy's arm is in between the rails, which is the jurisdiction of the railroad. But if his body was not far enough away, then he was he wasn't under that jurisdiction. If you, uh, you get can, my yeah. meaning you there, can, you can shoot
1: that guy, Doug. But you better back, drag him back into the house.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so um, the you know the jurisdiction thing is uh, it, is interesting. But what I started with, you know, a pound is a pound the world around. If we, if the world, if all the court systems, if all the rights, because you see, yeah, we here have the bill of rights, but I personally believe that those rights apply to everyone everywhere. Because our father has a just weight and measure system. Um, so, um, Even if they, if their uh, quote government didn't give them that, the father gives uh, his creation that. Okay, so so it's there anyway. Okay, like the right to defend yourself. Okay, I think that's pretty basic uh, in in all of this stuff. And so, um, you know. Cases will apply where they will apply that, uh, that story, uh, justice story that said that, but nevertheless, no, that's not what it is. That's not the way things are supposed to be run in, uh, the father's kingdom. If, if his kingdom and his rules applied everywhere, that wouldn't be the way it would be done. There'd be one just weight and balance, as to rights of people, etc. So that's that's the problem with laws not being based upon scripture, where you know just weights and measures are applied. Well,
1: you know, you know it that, all. It that, all goes. My it goes back to all these religious roots to all of this stuff we're dealing with, Brent. Before I get turned over to Patrick, there's something that came in my mind of. A few minutes ago and I wanted to ask you about it because you're the person that I'm uh, about the people that I know that I'm sure knows a little bit about it tell us about the code of Hammurabi
2: oh I don't know much about it except I know it was discovered in an archaeological dig and it came up on a stele a stele is a kind of a pillar looking thing and it was written in cuneiform and many of the I've read parts of the provisions of it the provisions of it many of them are analogous to the provisions of the the particular law of the Older Testament, uh, the particular law the law of the Older Testament, by the way, is also the particular law of the Newer Testament. Uh, in other words, Jesus Christ said, "I came to establish that particular law." Many of the provisions are the same. I had a lady tell me not, not long ago, and and rightly so, said, "Well, I notice with the law of the land and the law of the city." the code of Justinian versus the common law, in other words, I noticed that uh, a lot of the prohibitions and a lot of the commandments are the same. You know, murders against the law, stealings against the law, It's torts, certain torts are the same, and trespasses, all those things are true. That's true of uh, law, legal standards all over the world. You know, stealing, stealing. But again, the difference is not the legal standards. Uh, the, the substantive law, as lawyers would say, the difference is how you go about proving it and resolving it. Uh, resolving the differences between litigants, and how do you go about approving your case? In other words, do you have what we call at common law, due process, or don't you? Due process includes things, generally speaking, like separations of the three powers of government, all these things the Bible supports, at least two witnesses to prove a a fact. Um, It includes the right to remain silent. It improves no unlawful searches and seizures, unreasonable, without a warrant. Of your person, your by your papers and your effects, it includes uh, the way the militia, the way the militia is to function. It's axiomatic. Every man has a duty, a duty, not a right in the sense of the right as we use the word, but a duty to protect his own life and the lives of his wife and his 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 neighbors and his children and other. T- he has a duty to do that when somebody's being when uh, abused he has a duty to stop it as moses did when he stopped the egyptian from beating the uh, beating the israelite uh, just as one example that was what it was in his head when he killed that egyptian and uh, we don't know all the circumstances are. But I'm just making the point, those things are all inherent in us. God gave us those duties. We know we have those duties. And to deny them, you have to get pretty theological. In other, For example, to do like the Quakers and, a lot, and the Brethren and other pacifist people, you have to get pretty theological. And you have to deny your own instincts to say, I don't have the right to shoot an intruder in my house trying to rape my wife. Well, that, that's the kind of thing that when you get, when you get too wound up and bound up in, in reason and you leave the facts of the law out, the simple, implicit, simple um, commands, we have ten of them, by the way, under which all of the law of God can be categorized, but the Code of Hammurabi is another one of those examples of, um, of us, the substantive standards of law being very much like ours, and people say, oh, it's all the same. No, it's not the same. There is no freedom of speech in the rest of the world. There's no freedom of speech in court. You can't defend yourself in court. There is no jury. There is no impaneling. If there is an impaneling of the jury, there is a court that's formed. This is a true story. This is uh, the fad now in the rest of the world. uh, South Korea just did this. They don't have the jury. They're under the Code of Justinian, a form of it. So they said, well, we need to have a jury like Americans. It makes people feel better. It does, of course. But again, it's window dressing because above that jury, they established a court that would decide whether or not the jury made the right decision to see how <laughs> foolish this all is. This is the way it is in all of the world. No, that's due process. But, oh yeah. That's due process. Yeah. See, see how subtle it is. No, the jury, the jury, the 12 man jury is the final court of last resort from which there is no meaningful appeal. Our constitution of the United States says it that way, except it says, of course, according to the, uh, the, the due process, the common law. If, the, the course of the common law, if the jury was not a pan, impaneled according to the course of the common law, due process, well, then their decision can be overturned, of course. If they brought evidences in that wasn't into the jury room that wasn't offered at trial, well, of course. There, are, there is the course of the common law the jury has to follow, too. But if the jury has followed that course and no one uh, complains, their deci- the decision that the jury made uh, stands, and especially stands, even more strongly, in the face of a uh, false due process, as a matter of fact, the, the decision that the jury makes of facts is important. As to the law, the jury, of course, uh, can uh, bring back its decision on the law also. That's uh, beyond debate in our American tradition of common law, and it happens a lot. It still happens. Even though people say it's not the law, courts say it's not the law, it happens, and it should happen. At any anyway, rate, back to the bottom line, the Code of Hammurabi is not necessarily a representative of due process. Do you really think that under the emperor, a Babylonian emperor, you're going to have freedom of speech and call him an SOB and get away with it? That's not going to happen. It doesn't even happen in countries today like Sweden. You can't say anything against Islamic criminals in Sweden. They'll throw you in jail. Go
1: yeah, ahead. they will. Uh, did it predate the Babylonian Merchant Code? Was it a, a precursor of, or where was the time frame there with this code of hammurabi
2: well if you go to the only real record we have the most reliable record we have the record that's never been proven wrong the record that has been hammered and sifted and, and looked over more than any other that's the record of the book called genesis the writing writings of moses and in that book he tells us that uh cain murdered his brother abel and then of course um the the creator of heaven and earth, the only true lawgiver, called him to account. Fascinating account there of, of him doing that, uh, the fourth chapter of Genesis. And Cain uh, was uh, declared a vagabond and a wanderer. Uh, God said, you will wander. You won't stop wandering. It was a curse that he put on him. He was separated from the land, cut off. When you see the words in the Bible, cut off, if there's nothing after them, cut off from what? It'll say cut off from this or cut off from that. It just says cut off. Uh, Just add in your mind cut off from the land because that's the the phrase. That's what it means. To be cut off from the land is to be cut off from life because we have no life. If we aren't connected somehow to the land, we can't even eat. We'll die. And everything else we have to make life tolerable comes from the land. Well, he was cut off from the land and he was made a wanderer, uh, cut off in the sense he was
1: Well, we lost Brent. Country. There he is. And
2: therefore, built cities. Wait a minute. Right, am I there?
1: Yeah, you'd cut Roger? off for a second. You'd cut out for a second, and dropped off. But I don't you're
0: know, back. you I can hear you, Brent. Oh, I can good. hear you. You're still good. on.
1: Okay, so, I'm, let, me do my, let me do my thing. This is my deal. Okay, so, we'll be right back here. Hold on. He we'll be right back.
2: City. He built cities. We're back. Okay, we're back. Yeah, you hear me, Roger? Yep,
1: I hear you fine, Brent. We're back. Okay. My end. Snafu Here. taken care of. Continue, please.
2: Cain built cities on the plain of Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia was between the Tigris and Euphrates River. You can remember the which one is which if you start with the Jordan down in what we call the land of Israel. Jordan, and then you go north and you hit the Euphrates, and then go north of that, and you hit the Tigris. And you can remember it from the acronym J-E-T, Jordan, Euphrates, Tigris. Well, between the Tigris and Euphrates, which is up north of the Jordan, they call that's called the land of Mesopotamia. Pot- Potamos means river in Greek, and meso means between or in the middle of. So it's the land between the rivers. That's where he began to build, and he built the first cities that mankind had ever known. And then his descendant, a man by the name of Nimrod, Nimrod, which means rebellious or refractory, refractory, Nimrod built the first true city that became the, that, that became the center of the first true empire of all the cities of the plains. And then out from Babylon, throughout the history of mankind, all of the cities of the earth and the law that went with them developed. And that's why it says in the book of Revelation that all... All of the cities of the earth will be destroyed, and all false religion, law, and government arises out of Bab- has arisen out of Babylon. Babylon. So Babylon became the city from which all the evil empire arose, and at Babylon, Roger, the law of the city was first organized in sophisticated form, the form substantially we have today. So Hammurabi... Hammurabi, Hammurabi as an emperor came after Babylon. Rome is a product of Babylon. The cities of Egypt are a product of Babylon in the ancient world. The city of Pergamos, all the Greek city-states were on the same model of Babylon. And uh, the cities then of, of the Holy Roman Empire, of the the walled cities of Europe and all over became the products of Babylon. And even yet today, the, I call the law of the city which uh, the Romans called the civil law, same word, civil, has to do with city, and civilian has to do with city. To be a civilian, to be a citizen, is to be uh, an adherent and a votary of the religion, law, and government of the city. And in Rome, for instance, which came out of Babylon, and Hammurabi was that kind of an emperor too, the law of the city prevailed there. And uh, if you weren't a part of that fraternal organization, uh, in other words, if you weren't called a citizen, That means you have to uh, pay homage to the emperor as a god. You become a citizen. Then uh, you um, can enjoy all the benefits of the metropolis, they called it in Greek. Metros means mother and palos means city. You see, it's no accident that Rome, yet today, the Roman church, is the city church, the urban church. And it calls itself the mother church. That means it's from the mother city the canon law is the code of Justinian, the law of the city uh, adapted to the ecclesiastic um, form. And it is now the chief vehicle of the law of the city throughout the world. But Hammurabi is just one of the descendants, the lineal descendants, and in, in, in not in a blood sense, could be, I don't know, but in a, a sense of culture from Nimrod, the first true emperor. And uh, he ruled the territory around the city along with the city. And it was called the territory. It was still called territory. The word is still used. And it means the area of land over which the city extends its terror. That's what a territory is. And that's what we're falling in. The problem never changes. We're falling into that today. Somebody sent me something, Roger. Let me finish with this. I I know I'm talking a lot. No, no, it's fine. You're, you're a very gracious. (laughs) Let me talk. But, Uh, The county of Los Angeles, Los Angeles County, uh, has more people in it than over, I think, 23 of our states. Wow. has more people in it than 23 of our, almost half of our states. That's why, of course, we have the Electoral College. And somebody said to me, well, if that's true, then it's not fair to California that uh, these other states, and they were saying we don't need the Electoral College. And I said, well, you're right, it's not fair to California in this sense. Uh, It's not fair to the rest of the counties of California, which are primarily rural and agricultural. And California, until very recently, has not been controlled by the cities. Illinois, until just very recently, the state house was not had never been controlled by every uh, by people from Chicago. Uh, Same thing is true of Texas. Same thing is true of Nevada. Nevada now is controlled entirely by Reno, and more more so even by uh, Las Vegas, because yep. that's where all the population is. And once the population of the city, who are accustomed to living piled up like rats, and most of us have experienced that at one t- or time or another, and you become acclimated to living without rights, and then you want, and you, you, you send your folk to the legislature and the state, and they pass laws that, uh, for the city, and uh, the rest of the state then has to live under that tyranny. That's what happens in an empire. That's what the city-states of the ancient world were like. That's what Rome was. It was an empire of territory, uh, the terror being being extended from the city of Rome, which was Rome, which was the, the, the incarnation of the empire, and then the emperor was the incarnation uh, in a personal way of the whole thing. It's interesting. So you what, you should yeah, phrase
1: it like that. This guy Beto out of Texas, this new socialist poster child, they're going to try and run at some, some capacity in the next election, obviously. His statement the other day was we should get rid of the Constitution that doesn't serve an empire such as us. He made well, that statement. He, right. he made that yeah. statement.
2: Okay. Well, he's right. And, and, and Washington, D.C., that city becomes the law of the city that extends its terror over the jurisdictions of the states unlawfully unconstitutionally, and it's done it primarily more than any other thing through the Commerce Clause of our Constitution. Ah,
1: through the 14th Amendment, too.
2: Yeah, that's right, too, using that. Uh, you know, what's interesting, Roger, the privileges and immunities. It's important that we recognize and wrestle, wrestle with this. The privileges and immunities of the 14th Amendment is a phrase lifted from the fourth article yes. of, uh, of the Articles of Confederation. Correct. That's and, uh, what, we need to see it in that light. Go ahead.
1: I sent you that, like I said earlier, that you and Patrick, who's with us, who had not even got to welcome yet, uh, because of his particular unique orientation. It, it has to do with standing in courts of state citizens. I want you all to both you can turn that over to Pepper over there. Uh, Patrick, and see what he says about it. It's pretty interesting what Daryl dug up there. I forwarded it to you guys. I wanted to also say, if any of you want to learn more about the grassroots of what Brent was talking about, over on SovereignToSurf.com, my main website with two spelled out, SovereignToSurf.com, down on the right-hand side, a little over halfway down, you can download a book entitled Historical Jurisprudence Historical Jurisprudence I don't remember the author but it was published out of John Hopkins University about 100 years ago and the first 90 pages of that book are all on the background and the inner workings and the structure of the Babylonian Merchant Code it's very well worth reading
2: well I'm sure that the Babylonian is good go ahead
1: Patrick? Go ahead. But,
0: yeah, it
1: Hold it. Somebody's trying to add something, and they sound like they're in a sound chamber somewhere. Who Who's wanting to add? Doug?
0: Uh, Doug. Yeah, Doug. Can you hear me okay?
1: I hear you better now. It, what would you might- like to add?
0: Well, um, uh, what Brent was talking about, um, about um, Kane being a, a vagabond, You know, uh, a vagabond is is one who wanders from place to place without visible means of support, uh, semi-colon, a tramp. One without a settled home, a wanderer, um, semi-colon, nomad, a worthless fellow, semi-colon, rascal, pertaining to a vagabond, nomadic, having no definite residence wandering irresponsible driven to and fro aimlessly and the only thing i wanted to add to that uh is that um it, it's um uh this is to uh Brent uh you know one of the things i've noticed over the decades, i've been uh, looking at law and uh, studying it is the um, no matter where you go, whether it's TV shows in the courts, uh, the TV um, you know, they always want to ask what, uh, what was the motive? We still don't know what the motive was. And um, the issue is for me is that it doesn't matter what the motive was. If somebody uh, commits murder, it doesn't matter what the motive was or is Um, the issue is uh, as far as I understand it, Brent and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, all criminal um, uh, charges are supposed to uh, establish willfulness and that's a difference between um, motive and actually willingly doing what you did. So uh, I'll uh, shut up now. And will you comment on that, Brett? we sure.
2: And and that's a good point. Uh, They have to be distinguished. Motive and intent or willfulness, as somebody might put it, uh, some of the courts put it that way, are two different things. Motive is important, though, for example, in a murder case to the prosecutor because motive is a way that he can... If he can find a motive, that will help persuade the jury that he's guilty. If you don't have motive for a murder, it's hard to, pr- to persuade a juror a jury of guilt. People, most of the time, although that's not always true, and I agree with you, murder's murder. It doesn't make any difference what the motive is, but it does become an important point to prove to the jury. Most murders, people have said in the past, are not random killings for nothing. People have reasons for killing people. Well, that's not always true. There are random killings for nothing. Um, But usually I've I've found if I look, uh, people will have reasons. They're not lawful reasons. You know, people that are uh, random killers, uh, if you look deep enough into their background, you'll find uh, something you can put your finger on and say, well, this is probably what drove him to do this. But still, it becomes an important point of proof to persuade the jury but I agree with you, murder is murder. If you tend, intended to do it, and it's, uh, unlawful, it is unlawful murder with malice and a forethought, as we say, uh, the motive is not an element of the crime. Willfulness is an element of the crime, but motive is an aid in proving the crime. Because it's relevant. What, what is relevant? What is evidence? Evidence is anything that tends to make a proposed fact more likely or less likely in the mind of the juror. And if you find something that does that, that's evidence. But then the next question is, is it relevant evidence? Is it strongly enough tied? And motive can be one of those strongly enough tied persuading points of evidence in a murder case, for instance.
0: Well, I can see that where uh, intent um, would be uh, the fact that you did do it, but then um, motive, if you could prove motive, then that would prove intent, uh, because there was forethought. Yeah. Right. Well, there's forethought there. Yeah. But, right. um, but what I, what I'm saying is that whether or not, um, you know, the justification of being found guilty for say murder would be in intent. And if there is no intent there, then, um, then the motive might bring into question uh, 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 other circumstances that um, would show that, well, you know, you were forced into it um, from either stress or or whatever. So I, I think intent is the primary thing. And if you can prove motive tied with intent, then you have a, you know, you, you got a, a slam dunk there, but uh, I, I put, uh, what I'm saying is that they have to prove, when I say intent, I mean, I'm using the word willfulness, and as I've studied this stuff for some time, um, you have to prove willfulness. That has to be proven, and I don't know what the difference is between the word intent and willfulness uh legally but um as i've uh, read a lot of uh, the statutes and things you have to prove intent or uh, willfulness uh-huh. and um if that can't be proven then you can't be uh uh charged regardless of the result of someone's death in other words it might not be murder it might be self defense um That's so right. If you can't prove willfulness, then um, then that's a big uh, difference there. And so that was the point I was trying to bring about.
2: You did, and you make the point, too, that motive can be a defense. Well, I thought he was going to kill me. Yeah. I thought he had a rifle in his hand, but it turns out to be an umbrella and it was dark and raining. I read cases like that. So motive can cut both ways. It can be it can aid the prosecution and it can aid the defense. Back to you, Roger.
1: Well I've got motive and willfulness right in front of us and those things are attributed to Patrick who called in. I don't know I don't think he had any malice or forethought or anything, but I know he must have had a motive. Hey Patrick, how you doing today, buddy?
3: (laughs) Oh, pretty good. I caught a little bug. feeling under the weather usually don't ever get sick but once a year but uh, gosh gee whiz where do we start we're from autism to cane to uh yeah you know a pound uh, i looked on wallach's website and he said that if you get the kids uh, on the uh cents essential nutrients and cut out all the bad foods the barley wheat oats and rye and get them off the sugar Get him to eat about four eggs a day, that all that stuff will go away. Feel free to look it up and y'all get off the radio. Uh, well, I've certainly taken his regimen and it's fixed me in, in the blood pressure and sugar, sugar problem.
1: Well, you can do things um, like cilantro, and they use a lot of cilantro down here. Uh, cilantro pulls yeah. heavy metals out of the body.
3: I got some in my mouth from like 1968. It's called lead. You know, they, they put it in my teeth uh fillings but um i you know yahweh said he protected his his, uh elohim in the in the end days from the table being our snare and i know where i know our tables jacked up uh by by proof of all the chemicals i'd spray when i grew vegetables for the school system as a little side game but um you know back to uh, Back to Cain, you know, he was true a vagabond and everything y'all discussed is correct. And the curse was he couldn't he couldn't live off the land anymore. He couldn't grow anything. And if you look at the Edomite today, he he controls all the farms and stuff. He he's he's a, a merchant. Like when they ran him out of the uh, temple, I mean, he, he controls the the finer things, you know, and the, the instruments of money and the uh, jewelry and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but at, at, at the end of the day, I uh, I know that he'll come back and straighten all this out. Um, we're just under a suppression now where we're truly serfs, um, and don't even realize it. Um, did you get that text I sent you where my son had was dealing with the Spanish teacher? No. Um,
1: uh,
2: Roger.
1: No, cause I, I, we're not hooked up where I can get texts. I'm on an Ecuadorian phone number. We need to get that corrected though.
3: Oh, really? Really? He was in class the other day and he'll lean on me in Bible study and ask questions and stuff. Let me see if I can find it. Um, uh, I don't get to see him a whole lot. He's eighteen, going on twenty-five. It's all about trucks, girlfriends, bonfires, and drinking beer. I think. But, sure. Uh,
1: don't forget rock and roll in there. He comes
3: by naturally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's country music with oh, him okay. up here in Parsons, Tennessee. There, they're more country than they are anything else. Right. Um, he uh, he was in Spanish class, and he let me read this real quick. It was I was pretty proud. I mean, my my mother couldn't believe he could think on that level, but. um, he said, I just told my liberal Spanish teacher that believes, that believes uh, we should have open borders. I'm a Christian. I believe in heaven, and my heaven has big walls, a big gate, and a very strict policy on who can enter. And hell has wide open borders. Let her sink that in. She'll uh, let her, what do you say, let that sink in. She shut up after that, that one. And then he went on to say... She also told me I was insecure about other people's insecurities because I don't think gay marriage should be legal. She didn't like me uh, because I was wearing my Trump shirt and have facts uh, to put her in her to put her bullcrap in, into shame. I really made her mad when I said this country has the lowest unemployment rate due to, thanks to Trump. And uh, I got back to him. Of course, he wanted to know some verses and things, and I sent him some. And he showed me pictures of. Of Trump with a lot of black people prior to being uh, the president, there wasn't no racism there. If she went on to call him a racist. And uh, anyway, I we had a good good volley back and forth, and he wanted to come down and uh, meet me in the next weekend or two and go over scripture and stuff because he, he knows he's being lied to. And he went on to talk about that. But, it's uh, uh, it's
1: really I was quite easy.
3: intrigued with him.
1: It was real easy for the Frankfurt School bunch to hurl hurl labels that they don't even understand. Let's circle back to this autism that we started the show at. There was an example in that video that they were talking about. California, Brent. Jerry wow. Brown signed a law out there where kids 12 and younger, I think, don't can get a vaccination at school and don't have to ask permission or even tell their parents about it.
2: Oh and, no! That's and I've heard in California, you if you're in a public school, your child they've got to take them. That's the law. Yeah, well, they right.
1: one of the ways they're doing it with this Gardasil for uh, which they're trying to give to boys now too, but it's supposedly oh, yeah. for women. Okay. Uh-huh. and uh, one of the ways after Brown signed that law that they're doing it is they get all the girls in a class and ask them, everybody that would take, would like to take this vaccine shot will take you to McDonald's. These 11-year-old girls. Huh.
3: Lower Put the carrot in front of them.
1: I, I mean, it's it got
3: monkey juice in it. They don't have monkey juice oh, in it? it, it. No, it's, got, uh, it's just like saltpeter and everything else. There's,
1: there's no telling what all's in those things. And one of the things they're doing is they're purporting to take thimerosal out of, as an adjuvant, I think they call it, out of these vaccines. But what they're doing is substituting aluminum back in.
3: I think that's what causes all these different autisms and stuff. Well, that, You know, Wallach said it's a
0: mineral deficiency
1: um, playing the, straight out. They, uh, they say in the video they use a example of a control group, if you will, the Amish, who do not give vaccinations. And their autism rates are 1 in ten to 15,000. And, uh, and, and the ones in our general population, I don't remember the statistic, but your eyes are open wide. You know the look
3: at your pots and pans, and you yeah, scratch them. No, you scratch no, your no, pots and pans. Think of where all that
1: metal is going. Yeah, but that's not it. Where you're getting it is in the vaccines. And I personally think one of the biggest ones that's not talked about that over, is overlooked is in your deodorants, because that's they use aluminum in the deodorant. That's what dries up is the antiperspirant aspect of deodorants and it goes right through and there's no blood brain barrier protection there i think that a lot of those problems are coming from that more than anything else that and vaccines those two
3: I use some different type type stuff I get at the health food store, and I found out about the aluminum in that Mitchum I've been using for years. Well, I'll tell That's you probably what, what's wrong with me, all that.
1: One of the things I've used for over 30 years is you can go to the health food store and you can get these rock, these salt rocks. And they come in different configurations. But you'll spend maybe ten bucks on one of them that's like a regular one where you twist the bottom and it comes up like you're used to, except it's a salt rock. And it doesn't give you the antiperspirant, but it kills all the bacteria and therefore any odor. And man, one of those things for ten bucks will last you two years. Easy. But
0: longer
3: but, than that. I will take you up on that. Longer than
1: that. Yep. Yeah. They, they, yeah. they, it works like a snap you got to you know uh much better much better for you and it totally takes that aluminum and the underarm area out of the equation and that's a very sensitive area in your body you know that, I've
0: been using but, that for uh, for 20 years i've been using one of those it's called a crystal yeah. uh, and from the health food store i buy it from and uh i've probably bought Four of them, yeah, and I still have like uh, two of them, and I use them all the time. Uh, yeah. That's what I use daily. There's right. no stink. Or yeah,
1: anything. no, there yeah. isn't. They do last forever, man. I mean, really, there's another one of your bargains out there for people. Uh let's see. We're getting kind of towards the end of the show. Is there anything anybody wanted to bring up that you, that you hadn't been able to get to uh, off this diverse? Topical discussion we've had today which is what usually happens but I like all this background stuff the Hammurabi and 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 Tompkins versus Erie Railroad and how these principles really apply remember Brent I had a guy call into the show this is back the other network their previous one ex-wife number three Um, and uh, the guy called in had had never I'd never talked to him before you know and he goes listen man we were talking about the common law or something. I don't remember if you were on that day or we'd just been talking about it. But the guy calls up cold, and he said, uh, I know that that exists because I'm a process server in Delaware, and I serve those common law writs every day.
2: Yeah.
3: Good feedback for you, Rogers. Good feedback.
1: Okay. I had another guy call in, he said the only thing I asked my wife to get me for Christmas was a copy of your book. <laughs> it was better. Yeah. I got that email
3: I got that email from you for uh for Ike to look at and I I tagged it, sent it to him a day or two ago. I appreciate it. he okay. he said he's gonna follow her up on this weekend. He's gonna be working on a brief uh for Brent. We talked in passing about an hour ago.
1: Okay, good. Did you get to speak to Ike, Brent? Yeah. Oh good. Well I hadn't met nope. I hadn't had a chance to meet him yet. I'm anxious to do that one of these days.
2: Yeah. Nice fella.
3: I'm gonna, I'm gonna make him get on the show. I gotta I gotta show up and sit there and put him on it because he's busy running that window getting cussed at. <laughs> I just take Pete and put him over in the corner.
1: Well listen, you could tell him that a radio platform is a lot better than that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Hell he might leave me. <laughs>
1: Uh, tell him yeah. we, need a, we need a really good, solid emissary to the black community on here. Son, he'd,
3: he'd be a Model A, I promise you.
1: Well, you know, John used to say in those, in those seminars, and he John just didn't have the picture because he was so focused on the taxation issue, they couldn't see the forest for the trees, okay? But he would get up there and say, if we could free the black man, we could free us all. But you see, what we've come to learn is that the the dialectic applies. we got to free the white man before we can free the black man and the others. Because it's them they've used to get us. They already had them enslaved. they They had them enslaved already previously. Okay, They were just switching hats with them. They were using them to get us.
3: Got it. been doing it Will
1: since you? the beginning of time. Yep. Brent, tell folks if they shouldn't know, which I think everybody probably should, but I like hearing you tell it all on how they can get more Brent winners.
2: You just go to www.commonlawyer.com. Commonlawyer.com. If you just type in Common Lawyer, I think it comes right to the top. You can see it. Go to that website. You can see there how to obtain uh, books, um, comparative law text, excellence of the common law, 958 pages. A common lawyer translates the Bible from the original tongues and annotates almost 14,000 footnotes throughout the text of the 66 books of the Bible. You can get that now. That's readily available. We're getting those out, and it's nice that people had wanted it for a long time. It's in four volumes. You can get that. And if you go to that website and just go to the contact page and email and, uh, and say, I'd like to have a copy, what do I have to do? And somebody will get you the information. And the same thing true with the other books. They can be found on com- at Amazon.com. You can also find them at uh, American Vision. AmericanVision.com. They're available there. And you can listen to me on the radio five days a week. It tells you how to do that tomorrow morning. We just finished 45 weeks, Roger, of Common Law of Evidence. And now we're starting a patriot mythology. Oh, on Patriot mythology, I've got a list of things I want to talk about. This ought to be enjoyable, oh, ought to, we ought to have a lot of discussion too. We need to um, get
1: those shows on replayed on the network and, and fill some time. You know, we can just plug that stuff in time if we could get them converted and uploaded and all that stuff. Maybe we can talk about that. I'll remind you again that Brent is. Uh, is some of his earlier programs are the hour before this program on a five day a week basis, and we're simulcasting a pretty interesting weekend show there from dennis falco i believe is his his name uh that has very good information he runs a good show and we're making some progress here brent i fully expect to hear you tell us that you've been booked on the dave janda show one of these days here in the future but we'll see as ted kennedy told mary joe we'll drive off that bridge when we get to it (laughs)
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, yeah. Listen, we'll be back Monday with more fun and frivolity and good, solid, meaty discussion. You guys have a great weekend. Brent's a real good show today. Thank you for being with us as always, and we really appreciate you around here. So, all of y'all that contributed, Doug and Chris and Patrick, uh, and thank you so much. And uh, I'll post that autistic thing but it's over at sgtreports.com worth listening to i'll see you on Monday. have a good weekend kids okay
2: thanks roger bye
1: ciao ciao
2: uh, um, uh, what
1: they say is tenemos buen fin de semana all of you have a good weekend i'll see you on monday